the reality is for automakers, plug-in hybrids are just as expensive as EVs to manufacture, and they don't get the same prices for plug-in hybrids that they get for EVs. So therefore, they're really not going to go that way. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludacris, the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. And unfortunately, Alex Roya is not here today, unfortunately, because we always miss him when he's not here. But in particular, um, I, I feel like it would have been fun to have him for this conversation because today we're talking about cars, of all things. Uh, <laughs> we've been in uh, sort of AV mode a lot lately and, and micromobility. Um, but there's been a lot of really interesting things happening in the world of just old-fashioned cars, um, particularly in, in electric vehicle sales, uh, the sort of disappearance of affordable vehicles, a bunch of other things. And uh, we have the perfect person here to discuss what's going on in the state of the U.S. And I think we'll stick to the U.S. car market, um, just as a U.S.-focused audience. And I think there's a lot of specific things happening here that are worth uh, our time. So we are joined by uh, J.D. Powers, Vice President for Data Analytics and friend of the show, Tyson Jomney. Welcome, Tyson. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me on here. So let's start with the EV thing then, right? Because because there's been some debate about this. I've had some interesting conversations online. I've been accused of being anti-EV again for some of my takes on it. So we have you here. I want to I want to ask you so what what is going on with EVs in the US market? Is there a slowdown? Is slowdown the wrong word? How, how should people be Let's just stop about it there. Money? What is going? Give us a baseline. <laughs> Don't I feed mean, them the answers. Yeah, Ed. Um, so EVs have hit an all-time retail share in the U.S. Uh, they hit it in September. Um, now, you know, here at the end of November, we're going to be really close to setting another record. Probably do it again in December. Um, so EVs are doing better and better every month, basically, than than the previous month, and certainly than year ago levels. Um, the the real issue here, though, is that expectations were far beyond where we are. Uh, we're exiting the year about nine percent. Uh, retail share for EVs. Uh, we thought it would average 10% for the year uh, back in January. So we're, we're well off the pace. Our, our exit rate for the year may get close to 10%, but we're not going to average 10%. And from here, we're expecting you know five, six percentage points increases almost every year from now to the end of the decade. And that's really where the rub is. is what's going on on the ground is far different than expectation or need. Yeah. A quick follow-up to that. What why were expectations misaligned with reality? Was it a, a something suddenly that happened in the marketplace that threw us off? Or was everyone just far too optimistic? You know, what, why, why the big gap? Yeah, I mean, I, that, that's, that's the great question. I mean, what, what we end up with, I, I believe my hypothesis is, you know, everyone wanted a sliver of the Tesla stock price, you know, more, more so than the cars themselves, I would, I would, Posit here. Um, they, they wanted a sliver of the stock price gains. And if you said that enough things and if you did enough things that kind of mimicked them, then maybe you would reap those rewards. Um, and so there's this belief that you know, we could transition very quickly. Uh, but what we found is you know, we had 16 EVs in market in 2019. Today we have 48. And they're all sort of aimed at that same price point, that fifty dollars to $60,000 price band. And, and there's not enough volume at that price band to support 48 entries. That's amazing. Yeah. So, okay. And so this is, and, and, and the motivation of this being the stock price, I think is, is a really important point, right? Because it, and, and what we don't always know about is like, what are the profitability of these, of these programs, right? Everything sells at a price. And I think there's always the question of, of, do you make money doing it? And I think it seems to me a lot, like what we know, just, we have little bits of, of, I would call it like anecdata, right? Like automakers, Ford will tell us, you know, we've been losing this much per, per EV, you know, and we have these glimpses. It, it doesn't, so it's not like a situation like we see, like, so when I first started covering the auto industry in 2008, where you had this like huge buildup in trucks and SUVs and, and it was a similar sort of oversupply. I mean, obviously a lot of different dynamics, but like fundamentally, you know, the, the, the demand and the profitability in that segment was solid. It was just overbuilt. And, and, and to me, one of the, the scary questions about a, a little bit of an oversupply building up, even if it's, even if it's only enough to sort of slow the rate of growth is the question of the underlying economics, right? Because if it's, if you're, if you're starting off from a baseline of that's not profitable and then, you know, you get into an oversupply then you know, that's potentially a, a very different situation than some of the other oversupplies we've seen in the auto industry in the past. Right. 
Yeah, and the typical playbook is you you ramp up incentives, you take price cuts, and and you reap the volume gains, and hopefully you don't you know oversubscribe and overcut the price, so you still are profitable. But what we found with EVs uh, is that we've taken a lot of price cuts in this industry. I mean, you can name them, right? Tesla, you know, twenty thousand dollar price cuts on Model Y, uh, Lightning, ten thousand dollar price cuts, and typically in the auto industry, we would expect to see a lift of about three to four percent for every one percent price cut, right? Elasticity, you know, I'm a data nerd. Sorry, you're gonna get data nerd answers. No, that's great. We would would expect to see three to four percent lift for every one percent price cut. So we're seeing a ten thousand dollar price cut, a twenty thousand dollar price cut, and we are not seeing three to four percent, three to four X the the rate, the elasticities here for EVs. They're actually turning out to be very low. So kind of the the oh crap moment came when everyone was taking price cuts and volumes weren't moving at the same rate that ICEs respond to price cuts. Interesting. So you talked about a little bit something that I wanted to pull the thread on a little bit, which was the sort of the market, the, the category of vehicles that we were seeing come out. So many of them in the luxury and premium market. And I thought that that was interesting. I think it's my hypothesis, I suppose, is that it's very much tied to that um, hoping to benefit from that Tesla stock price boost, which is put out a flagship, very tech-centric one, use terms like software-defined vehicle, um, but they're low-volume vehicles, um, and the, a lot of these flagships haven't seemed to take off. Like, you don't see lyrics for instance, much or, and I can name a bunch of others. Um, so was this just a misstep on which category would it have been smarter to just go for more of the Chevy bolt price point first, as opposed to the GMC Hummer or Lyric Celestique, um, you know, that much higher price point. Well, in, in theory, maybe. Um, I think what, what we're seeing, my, my hypothesis here, why price cuts aren't working, is that the further we go down in price cuts, the, the larger the percent of buyers that don't have driveways, that don't have garages and off-street parking, be able to charge vehicles. So the lower we go, it doesn't increase the TAM. It just lowers the price. And I think that's why we're not seeing the result here. So $30,000 EV absolutely should work. Um, we should see people there, but the reality is that that buyer market doesn't have the ability to adapt the EV lifestyle as exists today in the U.S. with the the infrastructure we have. Well, so there's an interesting thing that's going on here, right? Because we we talk about this EV transition, right? But like if you if you take a step back and think about just that word, like like the transition is happening on a social on a society, you know, or a market level or whatever, right? It's starting with well, better off people, and and the the goal, the vision, and and the progress so far has been to move down that price point. And so at a society level, we're transitioning. But like the way the policy set up and the rhetoric and the whole culture around this thing is not a, a transition at all. We're very much DM emphasizing hybrids and plug-in hybrids and and kind of saying, you know, what this is is a substitution. You you get rid of your gas car and you put in a big battery EV. And I I wonder if part of that issue is that it does force people to jump kind of into the deep end-ish in terms of like you go straight from gas to some form of range anxiety that comes with every EV, no matter how big the battery, versus say a plug-in hybrid, which you could think of as actually being a transitionary technology that allows you to realize, hey, I can do 90% of my driving on 50 miles of range and then but 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 learn that lesson about how I'm actually using a car uh without that cliff that comes when you run out of battery because you have that that gas engine. Do you think that's a factor here? Um, you know, I don't think, uh, yes, I I completely agree. I, I, again, I go back to the Tesla stock price. I think Tesla stock price resolved the whole transition for everyone because it was just like, we got to do that because we want that valuation. I personally think plug-in hybrids are a fantastic solution for U.S. drivers. I have one, works perfectly, right? Drive my kid to and from their sports in EV mode. I drive 200 miles, I'm in gas mode. It works perfectly, right? Um, But the reality is for automakers, Plug-in hybrids are just as expensive as EVs to manufacture, and they don't get the same prices for plug-in hybrids that they get for EVs. So therefore, they're really not going to go that way. Um, so it, it, the market has kind of already spoken, but it, it spoke from the stock prices and said, this is where we're going, regardless of, of the in-between steps. So I wanted to clarify what you meant by prices there. You say you're not getting the stock price boost. It's not necessarily that that, that the people aren't willing to pay a premium for a vehicle with a plug-in hybrid. No, or they, they, both. They, 
They are, but the cost of the, the plug-in hybrid to an automaker is about the same right. as, as producing an EV. And the, the MSRP, the transaction prices that they're actually getting for yeah. plug-in hybrids, does not cover that incremental cost. They're, they're worse money losers than EVs. Right. So the profit margin isn't there. But if it were, if those were a wash, if those were a wash though, if it was the exact same as the, as an EV business, cost the same, same profitability level or lack thereof, like if PHEV, if plug-in hybrids also gave you a Tesla style stock bump boost, like from the manager's perspectives who get paid in stock for to a large extent, they would, they would do it. And I think to some extent, that's the problem, right? Is that Wall Street is not saying, Yes, there's value in this as a transitionary thing. Like, like it's it's Wall Street is all in on the idea that we just go straight to EVs and that there's just like this clean adoption curve on that. And that's why I think, you know, maybe maybe it's an important point I make with the stock price versus the actual cars themselves, is because it isn't just cars, because it's it's cars, it's a charging network, it's it's direct to consumer, it's tech, it's it's all these things. So you can't you can't really uh outspec, outcool Tesla. Right. You, you can do all the same things and it doesn't add up the same way because yeah. uh, Wall Street is putting some kind of premium on that. The sum of all those pieces, you know, whatever the software is worth, which is, you know, two thirds of the stock price or something. I don't even know. You know, like what, what is what is uh, full self driving doing for the stock price? I, you know, um, so when you add up all the pieces, of the auto, they, they don't get the same valuation. Yeah. Um, I want to bring up Toyota for a moment because they were just raked over the coals for probably the last 18 months for being a laggard in EVs and, you know, really widely criticized it. Um, and then, you know, maybe to Toyota's fault, when I've been to Toyota events, they've been very defensive, right? Um, I mean, I understand why, but v- almost trying too hard to justify their their approach. And now it seems like they're the smartest guys in the room a little bit um, because they did choose to do that. Do they, like, what's your perspective on Toyota? Because they were the, I'm sure they wanted a stock price bump, but they didn't seem as desperate or have the appetite for it as some other automakers um, in chasing that. And instead sort of, did they stick to this strategy because they're just smart or because they really were lagging and they just got lucky that this is how the market turned out? Um, yes and yes. I mean, probably a little bit from both columns, but I mean, they are certainly the the leaders in hybrid technology as they've been for, you know, 20 years. Uh, so they, and they continue to electrify their whole lineup with, with hybrids. Um, you know, of course, models like Sienna and, and others, you can only get with a hybrid now. So hybrids are, are having a fantastic close to 2023. No, no question at all. Um, you know, vehicles, of course, like the Prius, which went from, you know, complete dorky now to sexy, cool, and it's not even slow anymore, right? The Prius is now fast uh, and it looks great. Uh, so Toyota is doing very well there. I mean, the, the game never ends. So right now EVs are, are going through a bad a bad spell um, and and hybrids are, are doing very well. Toyota looks very smart, prescient in their ideas. They are also investing, you know, what, eight, $8 billion in a battery plant or something. Um, so that that's not just going to go exclusively to to uh, hybrids as well. So they're, they're kind of covering all bases. They look pretty good. Uh, hybrids are easy to understand for consumers, and that's really what it comes down to. Uh, there's a premium for hybrids. It's it's only a you know three to four thousand dollars on a transaction price level. Uh, but dealers for some of these, they could show consumers right there on a piece of paper. You're going to pay twenty dollars more a month in your lease, but you're going to save twenty five dollars on fuel. So therefore, it's good. It pencils really easily. Hybrids are easy to digest. EVs, it's like. Well, can I charge at home? Well, I don't know. You got to get an electrician. I don't know about your house. And you may get some state credits. You may get local. I don't know. You're going to have to figure all that stuff out. Call your utility company. They like there's there's a whole lifestyle change with EVs that you don't have to explain to someone at purchase with like you do with a hybrid. So, so that actually is a great segue because I want to. We've been talking a lot about sort of the the management level, the the OEM sort of firm level, um, and I want to. Uh, you look at as much data about consumers and the market as as just about anybody, and I'm I'm really curious because I think right that's that's where we will find some of the answers, hopefully to to what's going on here and how we how we get past sort of some of the the struggles that we're having here. And so, what, just from what I've seen, which is again much less than you. It, there's sort of like these three things that recur when consumers talk about EVs and electrification, and it's it's right. It's it, they're pre- predictable enough. It's it's range, it's charging network, and it's cost. And like the problem is, is that they want all three. To the problem to my, in my eyes, right, is that they want all three, and that there's a trade off there, right? If you build more chargers and put more batteries in the cars, like the cost is not going to go down. 
Um, I wonder if you can give us a little more detail or texture on that data, and then we can maybe get into sort of what it all what it all means. Yeah, I mean, and unfortunately or unfortunately, so much of my thinking around this concept comes from you, Ed. So you know, um, so what am I going to re- repeat back to you? Your own thoughts, um, because it, what, what is interesting to me is the the lack of infrastructure in the U.S. has been. Uh, you know, smoothed over, filled in by bigger battery packs, which necessitate higher prices, and you know, away we go. Right? We have we have solved for the lack of infrastructure with bigger batteries, which create higher price vehicles. Um, so, to me, infrastructure remains the challenge. Uh, unfortunately, we kind of use it as a cop out a bit in the industry. We're kind of like, oh well, it's infrastructure, you blame it on someone else, right? Um, but and even though the policy, you know, the 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 IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which brought in so much money into the into the the EV space uh, set aside 7.5 billion in total for infrastructure reasons, uh, whether it's you know buying right of ways or improving you know expressway, whatever it is that that that's going to go, we're going to spend seven and a half billion on the the variable side on and en- enticing consumers to get into EVs this year this year alone, and from here it's only going to grow. So basically, we have like a 30x difference in variable marketing for EVs from the federal government versus investment. Like that's how far off. These two pieces are. We continue to incentivize consumers to buy them, and we do absolutely nothing about how EVs are are going to be livable and about the infrastructure. And Kirsten, I know you, I just wanted one one little thing on this. You mentioned earlier the the factor of infrastructure at home, home charging versus right because and, and the policy also seems to be really over indexed, right? Because the goal is to solve that range anxiety thing to to deal with the things that that appear to be hangups for consumers or or have been hangups for consumers considering EVs. But you mentioned, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, the lack of of charging at home may actually be the issue. Can you contrast the scale of those of those problems or or give us a, does it seem like policy needs to shift to emphasize more uh, incentives for home charging? It, would that help? Uh, I mean, it to me, that's still a form of variable marketing. It's still like a one-to-one incentive for one consumer. Uh, if it can't be used by by more than one, then you incentivize one consumer once, and that that solves one problem, but not not the larger you know context of of infrastructure. So I don't think that that's necessarily the way to go. Um, and I, I also, I you know, I'm not advocating the federal government to own charging stations either, right? Um, but there's there's a lot of things like you know, as I mentioned, expressways. Um, most of the uh, the interstates, you cannot have a uh, a rest stop on the interstate itself that that does any kind of commerce, right? It may vary by state. I, I'm, I'm not a, a complete expert in infrastructure, but you you cannot have in many states refueling stations on the interstate. The only way to do it is to actually get off and, and go to Arby's or something and find a Tesla supercharger. Um, whereas this money could be set aside to you know basically do away with with the red tape there and and allow EVs to charge on the interstate. Um, to not have to get off and go, what but actually be there. Um, there's, it's even down to that sort of level. Um, so again, if we have eighty-eight percent of charging is done at home, so this is primarily a a a home charging vehicle as it is. If you don't have that ability right now, if you can't afford to do it, if your house can't do it, EVs still really aren't for you. Um, how has the since May really? Um, the adoption of pretty much every automaker, I think VW is one of the last remaining um, holdouts of adopting the Tesla North American, you know, stand, charging standard or NACS into alleviating that infrastructure. Is this just like shifting? Is it a shell game? We're just like shifting things around, or does it actually s- potentially solve a problem for exactly what you're talking about? I think it solves long-term problems. I think it creates short-term problems. If I if there's an EV on the lot today, why would I buy an EV that's not on that standard that is going to be obsolete technologically immediately? Like, wh- what's going to go on? Am I getting an adapter? Will the adapter work? Is it going to be slower? There's these questions, and the industry hasn't really answered them for consumers. Um, we we made the switch. Matter of fact, I was I was at an EV launch event. I won't say with who. When the same day they announced that they were switching to NACS, and I was asking the people, well, "How is that going to go for you?" And they're like, "We have no idea. We just made the announcement. We no, we don't know." And they're literally launching an EV into market like that moment with the old standard, and they don't know what's going to come next. So it was done very quickly. I think it's going to benefit us long term. Um, and I think one of the cool things now I don't know the the language included for anyone joining it. But to me now, it adds more emphasis for automakers to create their own bespoke 
charging networks. Because once you have this spine in place that you can go coast to coast very easily with, with the Tesla supercharging network, well, now if I'm Land Rover or if I'm you know BMW, why wouldn't I have my own bespoke network for my owners that plugs into that sort of backbone? And gives my owners a special experience. And when and when you know you're outside of where I am, well, then you can use the other one as well. So to me, I think it, it creates you know many solutions long term, more problems short term. How long do you anticipate though that spine, as you called it? I kind of like that analogy to to build out because we've seen like Mercedes has is doing a bespoke um, you know EV charging. We GM has not. Uh, it seems like they're partnering with dealerships. I'm not really sure how that's going. So we're seeing Rivian already has there. So how long is it going to take to build this out? Because if you look at the pace of superchargers being built out, it's, I mean, I track like how often these announcements happen. It's constant. I don't really hear about the others building out anywhere close to this pace. I mean, at all, nowhere close. I mean, we're about to close out year 13 of the modern EV world, and we're still talking about it. So um, I, I'm not optimistic that many will will solve it quickly. It's, it's going to be one of those things. I think most of them will say we're done. We've we've given it over. We have adapted this and we'll just rely on uh, whatever Tesla supercharging network wants to do. And I mean, I, I we're here to talk about, I mean, do we know how good of a business this is for any of these companies? I would say this is one of the challenges with Tesla. Everyone's like, oh, the supercharger network. And it's like for me, it's I've always thought it should be sort of included in the cost of goods sold for the car because it's it's functionally part of the vehicle in a way. It, it provides it a capability that other vehicles don't have. Um, and yet the accounting is so opaque around the supercharger network that like I think it's for me, it's been impossible to tell like – is this uh, like the equivalent of Tesla spending on advertising or something, right? Um, and uh, it seems to me that if if the business were really that compelling, you would see a lot more investment in it than we've seen. Of course, there are probably regulatory challenges. I don't know how much you get into that again. We're here to talk about cars, but uh, so I don't want to get too sidetracked. But if you have thoughts on that, yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not 100 percent on on uh, on that answer. Um, I don't know. It's it's tough, right? Because the auto industry is having to move from a world where a vehicle is this self-contained thing. That's like the whole the great thing about a car is it's it's a universal self-contained device that like just you know every the world is is aligned around. Um, and now we're moving to something where you know to get that level of capability, you can't just put pack it all into one vehicle. You have to sort of disaggregate it into both the vehicle and the infrastructure, both at home and on the road. It's just a it's a different paradigm, right? Yeah, I mean, if it penciled out, they would be doing it. So, um, you know, as it as it is today, we see the the third parties that are setting up in the dark corner of Walmart parking lots with, you know, no no covering for charging uh, using electricity in the rain. Um, you know, very little lighting and, and lack of safety. No no quickie mart to run into for cigarettes and lottery tickets and everything else we do at charging our gas stations today. So uh, the 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 economics must be quite poor. I'm not 100% up to speed on on them. Um, otherwise, we, I mean, we would see a, a better solution than we see. So for Tesla, it probably is the cost of doing business. Um, they charge a little bit for most consumers now to use a supercharger. Uh, they probably don't probably don't even break even on on what they charge relative to the cost. I mean, these things can go in at you know hundred two three hundred thousand dollars per charger in some cases. So um, there's just no way that would pencil out for anyone outside of you know to your point, Ed. Um, is this just a cost of doing business? Um, and, and, and maybe it is, except, you know, when you're selling millions of these a year, you, you just look at the cost and go, well, there's no way we, you know, as an automaker could support that, uh, going forward. Well, Tesla sort of had to, I mean, I know that there, you know, if you go back, back when, when I first started writing about Tesla and, and when Ed did, um, you know, there was some interesting criticism around it. Um, I, I kind of, my view at the time was, well, they sort of have to build their own sandbox here. They're no one else's. Um, and that sort of um, necessary act, you know, was a cost of business. I've also always seen the charging infrastructure as a re- more of a real estate play and than just EV charger play because um, I don't think other automakers have paid enough attention to that, like in terms of location, negotiating that, real estate deal, um, partnering with other companies. I just don't see that at all. Um, and so it's not just about the charger. You mentioned, 
Um, like there's no sunshade or rain shade. It's located in a weird place. Um, yeah, no one wants that experience. And yet we all know what the gas station experience is. It's not like you need to create something brand new here. Um, so it just, it, it, it's always, I've always been kind of fascinated by almost ig- like completely ignoring what Tesla has done on the charging side of things. There's, I've seen a lot of attempts to copy or get that stock price bump based on the vehicles, but no one's copied the charging piece at all. Yeah, maybe maybe to a small extent, as mentioned earlier. I mean, Rivian, Mercedes, a few others have have done very small scale versions of it. No one has done it at scale. Um, You know, I have a a confession to make. I I, I haven't even put this on Twitter or Blue Sky or anything. I I mean, this is this is real confession time. You guys ready? Oh yeah. I picked up a Model Y about a month ago, right before uh, the negative press cycle. I haven't told anyone this, by the way. So I know you're, brave, you're a brave man. <laughs> I, 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 so I'm, I'm believe me. And, and Alex has taught me nothing, if not separation of church and state. Um, you can you can have the product and enjoy the product and not be you know into the mission and everything else that's that goes with it. So I'm I'm doing it purely as a as a uh, a study. You know, part of my job. I talk about EVs all day. I've got to know what's going on. Um, I looked at at a few other EVs. Uh, like, you know, Maki, I couldn't find one within 500 miles of me that wasn't loaded up with all kinds of things. I mean, you know, Maki for 77 grand or Model Y for 40. Anyway, so I, I have a Model Y now. Okay. So I got to, I got to confess. Yeah. Well, so what are your, okay. I mean, what are you, what's what yeah. your thoughts so far? How does it, how's it informed your, your thinking? I mean, I, I, drive probably every EV that comes out. So for me, I, I know the the goods and the good and bad getting in. Um, it's it's probably an above average EV. Um, there are there are probably better solutions out there today. Um, but from a, a the very first week basically we had it, um, we, we figured out the value of the supercharging network, which was I was I was in Spain and my wife was driving it and she texted me, it's out of juice, I'm at a charge point station. And I was like, what the hell? What? Well, text, you, text you do not want to receive. <laughs> did you end up at charge point. And, and so I pull up the app and I find that there's a supercharger three miles away from where she is. I text it to the car. She goes there. I mean, so it's charge point is going to take seven hours to charge. Um, whatever she, she plugged into was her first time. She had to sign up for the app. She had to put the credit card. I mean, she's like, she's pissed off. I find a supercharger. It's three miles away. I send it to the car. She follows it there. She goes. She gets a Dunkin' Donuts coffee, which is right there. She's back on the road in 15 minutes with like whatever it was, 25% added so she could get to her destination. I mean, and it's like just one – the very first time you get involved into it, you you understand how radically different these two experiences are. Oh, absolutely. Which is just why – Just the process is- of – sorry, but just the process of paying and downloading and – um, you know, I'll say like Electrify America, for instance, was like the best of the craps, uh, um, options. And even then it was like, I live in Arizona. It's like freaking 130 degrees, like nailing these credit card, you know, devices. There's no shade anywhere. Um, it's a, fr- you see people trying to park the way that they've set it up. It doesn't fit every vehicle. Uh, the, things don't work. It's like the worst possible experience. And then on top of it, like you have to be committed to see it through, right? Like how many consumers, it's not a fun experience anymore. Like we're beyond that. The The first adopters are are gone. You know, that, that era is over. You got to make it easy. And it's surprising to me, back to my point earlier, how like just copy that. Like, hey, automakers, just copy that experience. I don't know if they just couldn't. Software-wise. Well, they, well, no, they don't have to because but with the next standard, right. now anyone – right? See, and I, I think there's an issue. Everyone's like, oh, this is so – this is – like it, it is a sign of Tesla's technological superiority when it comes to charging uh, technology. Like clearly, yes. And like I think the SAE committee had, should probably like – learn a bit about sort of, you know, maybe some of the classic problems with doing things by committee showed up in, in the CCS uh, uh, standard and Tesla's other way of doing it is, you know, but, but, but now, right now, if people say, well, the only reason I buy a Tesla, like I hate Elon and I'm worried about the reliability, but that supercharger network is like the killer app. All of a sudden you don't have to get buy a Tesla to, to, to get that killer app. I think that's a, 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 a going to be a tough thing for Tesla. As long as they can solve the, um, c- because I haven't tested it yet, um, but 
to me, the, the big piece is the payment system. So being able to pull up the vehicle already knows you're there um, because the battery, it's communicating with battery management software. The, the battery is primed and ready to take that charge. And then there is no exchange of money. Um, so I'm not familiar because I haven't seen it in action yet with these companies that have adopted Nax, is that going to be the same experience? Because to me, that is a critical component That's of it. Point. Pulling up sticky, it actually is easier than gas, right? At that point, you don't have to take out a credit card. It is one less step than gas, just plugging in. So do you know the answer to that question, um, Tyson, at all? Like, What's that uh, financial transaction experience like for the ones who have adopted Nax? I, I don't know, but I mean, you, you raise an interesting point, which is, um, again, you can't just outspec Tesla. You can't do all the same things unless you really think everything through. You go on the standard, fine. But to your point, there's battery software management. Um, there's, you know, the the integration with the navigation. The the car knows you're going there. The car is preparing to go there. Uh, if you're not doing all that and you just put the plug in, you know, you, you're better, but you're you're still not the same. Um, so they, you know, they they really broke the mold in a lot of ways. Um, we, you know, Tesla was really good at, at, at saying, don't do this. You know, all the, all the industry things that have been going on for 120 years, don't, don't do, don't do, don't do. They're less good at identifying things they should be doing, mm. um, far better at identifying things not to do. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of other things going on in the auto industry. Um, I want to get into sort of how we're paying for all of this sort of money losing EV stuff. Um, and sort of what are some of the other effects of that? But before we get into that, I want to just to kind of bridge these two conversations, like, you know, buying the idea of buying market share is something that's like been around in the car industry and in, in, in every business, right? And that's where you're not necessarily making either as much profit as you want or any profit at all in order to get that market share. In fact, yeah, if you're buying market share, you're losing money in order to gain market share. In a lot of ways, that's what everyone in the EV space is doing right now, right? Everyone is getting into this premium space. They know they're not going to make money and they're willing to even lose even more money in order to to gain market share. And like again, maybe you know when I came up. Uh, covering the auto industry, like that was like one of the things that people hammered Detroit on was they were constantly overproducing and buying market share. And it wasn't delivering the results like ultimately that it was supposed to. So I'm curious though, because this is a very different context. I don't want to just like take old orthodoxy and 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 apply it forward as I'm often accused of doing. Um I don't mind doing it if it if it if it's if it if it matches up. But but this is a new a new market that's being built, new players, new everything. And it's early, so I, I there's probably not a ton of data giving a super conclusive answer. But I'm really curious: like, are there signs that buying market share may be a smart strategy, or is there data that shows maybe that 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 it is like sort of other examples of buying market share where it's like it's a short term little thing and maybe get some headlines or whatever, but ultimately, you know, the market moves on, consumers move on, and and you'll have lost money for for nothing. Yeah, I I mean to your point every everyone's losing money on on EVs today but is that because they're they're so priced aggressively <clears throat> it it's tough to say I mean as mentioned the 50 to 60,000 dollar price point is sort of where the whole battles occurring in in the EV space and in that um you know you get Kia and you get Cadillac um so it, it's hard to say that Kia's buying market share at a 55,000 dollar EV6 yeah um but you know may would if a 55,000 dollar Cadillac Lyric is that buying market share you know maybe huh. um but traditionally uh, the premium space wasn't so focused on volume anyway. Um, so it, it's tough to say that the, they're losing money because of that. Um, I mean, ultimately, everyone wants to get over the uh, the hump, get over to the profitability side with the economies of scale on producing EVs. Um, and so it's going to take a lot of losses to get there. Um, I, I, I previously believed that the automakers, the traditional automakers had this asset, which was their ICE business, um, that they could leverage that, suck all the profits out of trucks and SUVs and use that to funnel into EVs. Uh, but I think what we're seeing is that in many cases, that may be an albatross um, that, that doesn't work out. You have that, therefore you go back to it at the expense of EVs, as opposed to using it to fund EV R&D and, and manufacturing. I, I feel like now we've sort of gone back the other way. And, and the hope out there, it feels like to me, is that people are saying, well, we've got you know global football and we've got American football, and maybe we can have a global market and an American market and go two separate paths here. Um, it, maybe that's what they're thinking right now. Like, okay, we've got the strength in ICEs. This side's really hard with EVs. Let's just focus on what we do best. So that's, a, again, perfectly bridges to what I wanted to talk about, uh, uh, which is like, you know, how this is all being being 
paid for essentially. And, and again, like for me, you know, you started covering the auto industry in 2008, like the, a lot of the car companies, core businesses, not, you know, not the Toyotas and, and the Hondas, but you know, the GMs and the Chryslers and, and, and the Fords, like their core businesses just couldn't make money. And so we're in this very different world now where the core businesses are actually very, very profitable. And so there is a lot of, of cash being thrown off that you can invest in these things. Of course, now also starting this year in, in this country, you have the UAW winning a huge new contract. That's going to ripple out. I mean, UAW is now targeting everyone else. That's going to, so, so costs continue to rise. Supply chain costs have continued to rise. The prices of cars have continued to rise, but also profits have been really, really strong. And that's the part I think where I'm certainly not as familiar with, with some of the more recent trends and, and maybe our audience as well. Is profitability still really strong in the business? And I, I, it kind of you kind of brought up a little bit of that innovator's dilemma potentially rearing its head again. Talk us, talk us through some of that. Uh, profit uh, this year, 2023, <clears throat> and any other year of the auto industry would be like the golden year of all year. Everyone would say this is the best year we ever had, um, and and this is probably the second best year we'll ever have, only to last year. Um, where you know we found out that lower volumes, higher prices can produce much greater profitability, uh, both for automakers and dealers. Uh, but the challenge is, it's a fixed asset industry, and therefore the desire to overproduce and and to continue to produce will always be there, um, because the next unit you produce is always more profitable in theory until you can't sell it, and then you have to incentivize it. Um, so there's there's that that impetus always to continue to produce vehicles. Uh, therefore, we can't maintain the discipline that we've seen that enables this high profitability. Uh, once the supply chain is fully unlocked, everyone can get back in. We're already seeing inventory approaching 2 million units again, uh, up from you know 800,000 at, at the worst of supply chain. Uh, of course, still down from the that 3 to 4 million range we're all so familiar with pre-COVID. Um, but so inventories are rising, uh, which is putting pressure on dealers to cut costs, uh, which is putting pressure on automakers to add incentives. Um, so the profitability is coming down. It's still, it, this would be the second best year ever. Um, you know, most most dealers are are still making about um, it, it used to be they made in one quarter what they made in the full year. They had a four X increase in profitability uh, for dealerships. Now it's down to about two X. Um, so they, they've given up a bit. Um, so it's, it's not as great as it was. Uh, but again, in any other cycle, any other year of the industry, we would have said 2023 was the best year we've ever seen. Just so happens that it for EVs or just for for EVs or for just car sales, for, car sales for everything. So for, for everything, everything. All, okay. all, all car sales. Uh, okay. So automakers should be flush with a lot of cash right now to invest in in any way that they want to. Right? This is this is a windfall. Let's be honest. Like, and and how you invest that windfall can greatly determine your your future. Um, if we if we use it to get to get better, get more efficient, uh, to to sort of break down. Uh, uh, you know, some of the the barriers that out there in the retail network. You know, invest in in the space. Get get consumers buying digitally. I mean, we could use the money any way we want to. Um, if we, you know, give it back in the form of dividends and stock buybacks <laughs> in other ways, um, you know, maybe maybe we're, we're not, you know, investing that windfall back into where it needs yeah, to be. Yeah, maybe going. we're not thinking through. So um, sometimes, it, it, and, and I think that, that Tesla um, kind of showed this a little bit, it was uh, the right there was a lot of things that happened that were right that captured people's imaginations and allowed it to, um, you know, kind of go up like a rocket ship and specifically with stock price. But even in terms of car sales, Model 3 being very popular, Model Y as well. I want you to put your prediction hat on a little bit. Um, for 2024 and moving forward, sometimes the right car comes along that just like pushes the industry forward. And in your view, what would be the right EV for any automaker, by the way, yeah. to like push to that next level? Um, yes, it's been good. We're seeing a lot more market share in EVs, but what will be the one that like really does that next big pop or is there one? And I'm talking category here, like not us, you know, like, is it a low price hatchback or is it a, you know. Yeah, I mean the the two biggest selling categories in the country, compact SUV and mid SUV, um, really, you know, my answer would be somewhere in there. Um, those those two um, account for about a third of all sales. Very price conscious markets. It's a family market. You know, you're getting a three row crossover. You're doing it because you've got a bunch of rugrats, and you know, you need to save money. And it's it's a very carefully considered purchase. Uh, compact SUVs like Rav Four, CRV, continue to be the number one selling segment. Uh, in the industry. So in my opinion, a, a, an EV that looks normal, 
meaning it's not a fastback. It's not, you know, all the, it just, it, it's got to have the right shape and functionality, first of all, uh, in one of these two segments, compact SUV or mid SUV, um, that t- today, um, you know, we, we still don't have any, any true, um, true EV players in, in these spaces. I mean, you could say whether uh, you think Model Y is, is not premium or it is, uh, we, we say it's a premium compact SUV. Um, but I'm talking about your RAV4s, your CRVs, uh, your, your Highlanders and Explorers, something in that space that just does car things that also gives you the benefits of EVs. Um, you know, as, as we know, uh, EVs, their great superpower, maybe I'm quoting Ed here, is that every morning you wake up and you've got a full charge. Um, and, and, you know, relative to an ICE vehicle, if you had ICE of 400 miles of range and an ICE, you never have 400 miles because you're, you filled up, you're somewhere in between full and empty, right? You're 200 miles on average. You don't know. And you don't need to, the thing is you don't need to know. Like it doesn't, it doesn't. Right. right, I don't pay attention until the like. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But when you wake up with an EV, you've got 275, 300 miles every day. So you, in theory, have more range every day with an EV than you do it for a family. Uh, with one exception, we all know the road trip, but for a family, every day you wake up and you can go as far as you could ever possibly have to go for all those needs um, and still, uh, you know, still s- still have enough range to spare. As opposed to a car, sometimes in the middle of running between soccer practice and swim practice, I have to fill up my gasoline cars. Um, so, th- you know, there's there's still some challenges for, for ICEs uh, that, that EVs solve better, and, and that's daily stuff. So I think a, a perfect vehicle would, would be something in, in that space, uh, most likely compact SUV that looks and functions normally like a car and just happens to be EV. But yeah. I'm, not, I'm not in product. I, I'm glad you said normal looking because I'm so sick of automakers turning these into novelties. Um, so and, and I was really like sadly disappointed in the Nissan Aria, for instance, because Nissan – has been at this for a really long time. The Leaf has been around forever. And it's not that the exterior of the Nissan Aria looks bad. It looks fine. But there's some odd choices that felt like we need to make this cool or we need to add this fun little feature that really doesn't serve a purpose. But then the stuff that you do want, and they might have changed it since I've been in the vehicle, um, but earlier this year, I was in there much earlier this year. And you couldn't just from the touchscreen, see the rate of charge. Like if you had the app, you could look at it. But if you had plugged in, like it wasn't displaying that there was no way to do it. So like real basic stuff wasn't was ignored or just wasn't thought through. And then it was like, ooh, but look at this moving console. Like, I don't care about the moving console. I don't need that. So uh, I, I just, to me, the perfect vehicle is probably a compact, like, co- crossover type vehicle that is price conscious. But the big thing, it's not a novelty car. It's not, it doesn't look silly. It's not trying to look special. And the fundamentals of the software is just like dialed in perfectly. So this this actually brings me sort of to what I, we, we're running out of time, and I really want to get get Tyson's thought on this because this is something we've actually discussed a little bit off offline. Um, uh, but it's it's this sort of disappearance of the affordable car, right? And and you have this sort of interesting situation where the industry is making lots of money on big trucks and SUVs, and they're plowing a lot of that into big EVs. And what's getting lost in the middle is is like basic affordable cars. But then there's also this question of is there demand there? Although I think for me, the example of Ford where they like increase the Lightning and the Mach-E production, even though they're losing their shirts on them and now sales are slowing there and it takes a year to get a freaking Maverick that starts at $25,000 yeah. now. Maverick, and, and the make price, that an EV. The price keeps going up. <laughs> well, no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm saying forget the, the long-term future. In the here and now, affordable cars are kind of disappearing. Is this going to be – a problem? Like, is this something that the automakers are going to have to go? Is, is Ford going to have to go and just expand production of vehicles like the Maverick? Um, w- talk to us about what's going on, like the causes and, you know, and, and, and yeah, just what's going on with this, this disappearance of affordable vehicles. Yeah. I mean, affordable vehicles have, have disappeared. Of course, our definition of affordability, you know, may vary over time. Uh, transaction prices have gone up over a third since pre-COVID levels. Uh, his, you know, the, Ten previous years, they averaged about two and a half percent on a CAGR basis. So, you know, two and a half percent annualized. Um, now they're going up. You know, something of eight or nine percent annually. Now it has 
has you know greatly flattened out. Um, in fact, we've been seeing deflationary pricing in the auto industry for uh, several months now. Uh, but regardless, I mean, to your point, there's always more demand at a lower price. So there's always a need for more affordable vehicles. And even what we call affordable has changed. Used to be sub 20. That space does not exist anymore. Now it's the sub 30 spaces is the starting point for affordability. Um, that is critical that the auto industry gets back there. Uh, right now, with the pricing we've taken, the industry is a fundamentally smaller industry than it was pre-COVID. Uh, the, the years of 17 million plus sales are gone forever because we, we have taken enough pricing that we could not get back there. Uh, our forecast for 24 is 16 million sales, um, and, and it sounds good. Um, and, and that's probably going to get pretty close to what the peak will be here as we get into the next cycle. Maybe maybe 16 and a half might be the peak uh, because we've taken too much pricing. Um, in fact, right now, we're still kind of coasting on, on pent up demand. Uh, the industry has lost seven and a half million sales since the beginning of, of COVID. We don't think that all those are still on the sideline. You know, a lot of consumers buy out their lease or uh, just get their vehicle fixed or, um, you know, find find alternative solutions. Uh, we still think there's about two million units of pent up demand. Uh, so inventory are rising um, at the same time that we've kind of, you know, this year we're going to end about 15 and a half million uh, sales. Uh, next year, 16 million, as mentioned. Uh, we can't get back there. And so I think when you add up these pieces, what we're seeing is there is a giant affordability issue in the industry. It's hard to define uh, because there isn't just one price point. It's not one thing, but it's it's clear to me. And when we look at the data, the the number of young consumers in the market continues to fall month after month, which is a great sign that cons youngest consumers cannot afford a car right now. They're staying out of the new car market. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and it's a really interesting wrinkle to the kind of uh, innovators dilemma that we're talking about too, right? Like, like, you know, part of what's sustaining this, these massive investments and losses in EVs, again, as you say, it's, it's these, this huge growth in, in profits and, and, and prices are, are a huge part of that. If the, in, the industry basically has a choice, right? Either limit the, the limit the growth of their core business in order to maximize profits, to sink it in, in hopes that this EV thing does take off enough to completely, you know, make this transition happen. Or at some point, and this is why growth uh, in the EV sector and, and showing profitability is so critical is because if that doesn't really get traction in like a profitable way, then the only way to grow volume, right? The, like, like you, is, is you have to go and, and build more affordable vehicles again, right? Yeah, and 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 again, there there's strong demand for sub thirty thousand dollar cars out there. Um, it's just getting back to that point is is very hard. Uh, Ford has the Maverick. They generally don't have anything else kind of in that space. That's their their entry level vehicle now. Uh, you still can find Nissan Versas and. Um, you know, I, I don't know to throw another vehicle out there. Uh, you know that that's in that price point. I mean, they're, they're, they're yeah. They still exist. I was thinking like the Chevy Trax, for instance, is like, I think. I think that's a home run. I think that is going to be a critical product for them. It, it looks great. Uh, it's got it's got everything that consumers want, and, and the price is fantastic. That's going to be a great vehicle. Um, and like what, what's interesting about that vehicle is that things that come standard in it, you know, it's it's not like some stripped down vehicle. I mean, you get a lot for that for that. So I would like to see that as an EV. You know, um, uh, um. Before we leave, you know, I'm going to be getting in the uh, uh, Chevy EV Blazer sometime soon, and I'm really interested in that vehicle. The price point might be a little high still, but then there's the Equinox, um, and I kind of wonder, maybe they should have done those vehicles first and just skip the whole GMC Hummer, you know, dance. I don't know. Yeah, I, I've I've driven the Blazer EV. It's it's a very good EV, um, but uh, you know, like all all EVs, prices have crept up since it was first announced. Um, and you know, now this decision to keep Bolt on, I think, was driven by uh, Equinox moved up, Blazer moved up, and that left that space. Therefore, Bolt could continue. Uh, when they originally announced prices, it was going to be 30k for. Uh, for the Equinox EV and 40K for the Blazer. Um, so they, they've moved up a bit, but thankfully they do have that, that bolt underneath it that they could continue to produce right at that, that $30,000 price point. Um, I, I think Blazer EV and, and Equinox EVs will be, will be hits. They, they will be strong. Uh, I think they're great entries. But honestly, when you see the, the Chevy tracks now, it's good looking and it gives you so much value that you say, you know, is it worth going up to EVs when I've got a product this strong here? I think most consumers are going to say, give me the tracks. Okay. So we're running out of time. I have one last question that I absolutely have to ask you. You look at the data, you understand the market. 
talking about EVs. We're talking about the, you know, the rest of the market. Uh, Tesla Cybertruck. Is it going to sell? Is it going to not going to sell? What volume is it going to sell at? I mean, I know you don't even like really actually even know the pricing, even though it's supposedly out. So it's going to be a hard one to answer. Any thoughts you have on the Cybertruck and and how it might actually fare? And what is, you know, if if you can succeed in the full size truck market in the U.S., that's a great, great segment to be in. Best segment in the world, right? Uh, What are what what odds do you give them? Um, you know, I put it in that same category as the Hummer EV. I mean, it, it's, you know, in the old psychodemographic days, uh, back in the 90s, we, we had a, a segment called Men Behaving Badly. Um, if you guys recall that, or if you were in marketing uh, back in the day. Um, so it, it's one of those things where it, it's going to compete for, um, you know, a lot of the the people that that want the attention, the, the bro dozers and the um, cause it, cause it's just, it's so right. How it's just so different looking, um, to me, um, it, and now, now this take doesn't feel so strong, but you know, a year ago I was saying the fact that it is so different is such an asset to it because it took so long to get to market and everyone else kind of beat them to market with their pickup trucks that if it looked like everyone else's pickup truck, why would anyone wait? So it, it's so different. Uh, but that also means that its volumes are not going to be that great. I don't, I don't have an actual volume estimate for it. Um, I mean, priced at, at 70 K and, and, and being sort of attribute limited, um, you know, maybe it doesn't do pickup things all that well. Um, uh, but it, it does sort of fill that, that, you know, niche for consumers who want the, the fast, fun car, the ostentatious car. And I got to be honest, that that little thing, pulling a, uh, a 911 on a trailer and beating the 911 in a drag race, say what we will, that's master marketing right there. Uh, absolutely. You do have to give credit where it's due. And uh, yeah. And and yes, I 100% agree. There's absolutely a, a segment of the market that w- that loves this vehicle, that wants this vehicle, and that um, I really hope I don't end up sitting next to the, that segment on the airplane. <laughs> so uh, with that- They'll be I, in first class, Ed. Yeah, it's okay. no, no, good, <laughs> good point. They won't be in the back with the likes of me. Uh, Tyson, thank you so much for taking the time. I really hope uh, listeners have have like been able to see, like uh, sometimes the EV transition thing gets presented in, in these really simplistic terms. I really hope this conversation has shown that like there's a lot of complexity here. There's a lot of moving pieces. And Tyson, thank you. You've really helped illustrate a lot of those pieces, how they all fit together how they all you know move and um i look forward to you know continuing to have this conversation helping folks understand this really fascinating moment in the in the auto industry all right thank you both